Hello there, you're listening to The Naked Pravda. I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, Medusa's English language managing editor. And this episode of the show is reaching you at what is the most awful time I've ever witnessed. The Russian military is pummeling. Ukrainian cities with missiles, tanks have rolled over the border. Civilians are dying. And an entire country's independence is threatened. Back in Russia, the authorities have threatened to block news outlets that use the words war or invasion to describe what is happening, which they insist must be called a special military operation in the Donbass. But this military operation, which is of course a euphemism, it's happening all across Ukraine, and it's a messy, unprovoked catastrophe. I did not see this coming. For months, I was one of the Russia area experts who frowned at the assessments of military analysts who predicted a full-scale invasion. I thought Vladimir Putin and the leadership in the Kremlin were rational actors who could understand that bombing Russia's most important neighbor would not serve Russian interests. But we're beyond talk of national interests now. Now we're dealing with blood in the streets and blood on the hands of the Russian president. That Vladimir Putin might do something disastrous in Ukraine finally dawned on me far too late. It was on February 21st when he delivered a nearly hour-long televised lecture on Soviet history and what he clearly believes are the flimsy foundations of Ukrainian statehood, arguing that the government in Kiev owes its territory today to the supposed generosity of the Bolsheviks, particularly to Vladimir Lenin. The content of this speech is what we're going to talk about today on The Naked Pravda. And for that discussion, my guest is Dr. Faith Hillis, a professor of Russian history at the University of Chicago, where she specializes in 19th and 20th century politics, culture, and ideas, exploring specifically how Russia's peculiar political institutions and its status as a multi-ethnic empire shaped public opinion and political cultures. Her most recent book, Utopia's Discontents, Russian Exiles and the Quest for Freedom between 1830 and 1930, is the first synthetic history of the Russian revolutionary emigration before the revolution in 1917. In other words, she is maybe the perfect expert to ask about Vladimir Putin's version of Soviet history and the Bolsheviks' role in shaping the independent state of Ukraine. In our conversation, the very first thing she stressed is that Vladimir Putin's decision to launch this invasion is not about history, not the way the Russian president would have you believe. For somebody who is just coming to this news and knows relatively little about Ukraine or Russia or the Soviet Union and their glorious shared history, um, <laughs> what, 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 what would you tell somebody who's trying to make sense of this. And obviously, you can't make sense of it because it's a senseless act of violence. But what would you tell somebody with the knowledge you have? Well, the first thing I want to be clear about is that I'm here to provide historical context, and it is indeed rich and complicated. But actually, I think the most important thing we need to understand right now is that this conflict is not actually about history, right? We need to understand history to understand where Putin's, where he's coming from. But what happened in the early morning hours of February 24th in Ukraine is that it was invaded unprovoked, right? And so whatever I'm going to say about history and all the nuance I'm going to provide, we need to just understand that um, 
history is almost irrelevant to to what is happening today on the ground in the sense that this invasion, you know, nothing can justify it. But I think I think the most important thing um, that history can tell us about the crisis is it can help us understand where Putin is coming from. And I would flag two moments in history, actually quite far apart, that are especially important in understanding where Putin's coming from. Now, we can go back in the very, very distant history. Putin likes talking about Rus quite a lot, and we can talk about that and the significance of that in his thought. But essentially, um, what we now know as Ukraine and Russia originated in Ukraine, um, in what is that Ukraine, right, in the city of Kiev. And um, since that moment, the two cultures have been closely connected. They've shared a religion. They have at times shared languages. They have shared common ideas. But beginning in the 19th century, you got a, a number of Russian intellectuals who began to look at this very complicated shared history and to interpret it through what they called a Slavophile lens. So this 19th century context is the first moment that I would point to as, under, as important in understanding Putin. And uh, what this 19th century Slavophile ideology preached was that Ukrainians, Belarusians, and Russians were members of one great Slavic family. That there were maybe, diff, you know, some slight differences culturally between them, but that they were insignificant. And the other important element of Slavophile thought for many of these 19th century thinkers is also the assumption that of these three brotherly nations, Russia is nevertheless on the top, right, or is culturally superior or something like this, that Ukrainians and Belarusians are a nation of peasants. And I think that this is really, really crucial in understanding where Putin's coming from today. This is what he's talking about. Is that like a first among equals thing or is it not even approach that? It's like more haughty than that. I think it's more haughty than that. I mean, on the <laughs> one hand, you know, the, the, the talk of brotherhood is an imperial idea, right? It suggests that Russia is greater than just Russia. The imperial aspect in Russia is also always incorporated, is always associated with autocracy, right? So the idea is that sort of the Russian autocracy has been put on earth to rule these, these Slavic brothers. Um, and this is very much where Putin's coming from when he's saying Ukraine doesn't exist, it's not a real nation, Russia invented it, stuff like this. The other historical moment that I'd point to that I think is very important in understanding Putin, equally important really to the current moment, is the 1990s. Of course, in the 1990s, the Soviet Union completely collapsed. People who lived in the Soviet Union lost everything, their lives, their jobs, their livelihoods, but I think most importantly, their sense of self-respect and their sense that they could have control over their destiny. And also for Russians, the sense that they had control over what they regarded as the imperial periphery. So places like Ukraine, Kazakhstan, so on and so forth. Now, this sense of, of loss was further compounded by Western actions, which are also important uh, in the context of the 1990s. So um, NATO expansion was an issue, right? And it, it, it is a fact that uh, the United States and many of the Western powers mocked Russia, looked upon it with disrespect, things like this. This is not the major issue, but it is an issue. And it's also a fact that Western economists and bankers basically went into Russia and stripped it for parts, uh, adding to the misery of, of people. So I think maybe the ideas of the current conflict come from the 19th century Slavophile ideology. But I think the affect of the current moment, that very angry Putin that we saw in his speech on Monday, the just complete aggression, seemingly unhinged connection with reality. This comes from the psychology of the 1990s, that this is never going to happen again. 
that we are going to show the world who's boss and we are going to show Ukraine who's boss as well. In that speech, I, I was kind of surprised that he ended with just saying that they were recognizing the the Donbass separatists because I thought it was going to. I mean, it's it turns out he was laying the groundwork for what's happening now, which is a lot more than that. But but uh, yeah, it was it was a it was a bizarre speech. I saw I think it was in the last twenty four hours that Russian state news media was dis- distributing a map showing Ukraine with like color where it was kind of like concentric circles of of the gifts from various Moscow it was there was the first one was this from the Tsar then there was a bit in the in the west from Stalin and the east from Lenin what what's as a historian how do you when you see something like that what's your what's your response my response is to cringe <laughs> I get I mean look if we, if we really want to talk about gifts you could you could plausibly argue that Moscow is a gift of roots right in the sense that um, the only reason that there was any culture or politics in Moscow in the 12th century is that you had clerics fleeing from Kiev when it was invaded by the Mongols. So, mm-hmm. I mean, speaking of a sovereign country, a country with a complicated history as as just a compilation of gifts makes makes no sense, right? It's the equivalent of saying, look, I mean, it, it, Texas is a gift from Mexico, right? I mean, it, it doesn't make any it doesn't make any sense. What about in terms of Putin? Putin really ripped into Vladimir Lenin, essentially blaming him for most of the territory that that Kiev controls today. What's the significance of Putin going after Lenin like this? Because at least to a true outsider in in say the United States or somewhere in the West, I would assume that. I mean, you see a lot of kind of commentary like, oh, Putin's trying to revive the Soviet Union. And here he is in his speech arguing that the Bolsheviks are to blame for all of Russia's problems today. So what's what's happening there? Yeah, I think this is a very important point, because as I suggested before, it is true that a lot of Western commentators look at Putin and his KGB background and think Soviet, that this Cold War context is front and center. But I think this 19th century imperial context is actually far more important here. He's not trying to reconstitute the Soviet Union in that it was an ideological state. He's trying to reconstitute the Russian Empire, right, which had a very different set of values. But all of the values that it had are values associated with Putin, nationalism, orthodoxy, empire, you know, huge territorial integrity of this massive space. Uh, So I think that that's what's going on there. Now, in terms of what actually happened in Ukraine under Bolshevism, there's a grain of truth in, in what he's saying. And maybe that's why the disinformation is is effective, right? Because it's not just fabricated nonsense. There's a tiny grain of truth. And the grain of truth is that Ukraine briefly existed as an independent state in 1917 and then was conquered by Bolsheviks. But it is true that it was the Soviets who took the kernels of Ukrainian culture that had formed in the 19th century and made them canonical Soviet Ukrainian culture. So Ukraine was the centerpiece of this nationalities policy of the 1920s and 30s that promoted ethnic minorities in Ukraine. That meant elevating ethnic Ukrainians, elevating the Ukrainian literature, elevating Ukrainian culture. But Putin's also wrong in the sense that as much as the Soviet Union helped to create uh, the foundations of, of an independent Ukraine, it also undermine them um, because Ukraine was also the site of a great deal of violence, right? During collectivization, there was the notorious Ukrainian famine during World War II. 
And then finally, you know, Ukraine is put in its current borders that we know it today uh, forcibly by the the Red Army invading Western Ukraine, which had never been part of the Russian Empire um, in the, the last years of World War II. So you can say that the Ukrainian borders that we see today exist because of the Soviet Union, but the story is just a lot more complex about that. It's not only a gift, there was also a great deal of, of resistance as well. Medusa actually published an essay by our mutual friend, Victoria Smolkin, a historian at, at uh, Wesleyan University, uh, where she argues that, I mean, exactly what you're just saying, that, uh, that, there's, that the key moment here are the years between the collapse of the of the Tsarist Empire and the sort of rise of the Soviet Empire, and that the Bolsheviks essentially lured back a lot of the Russian imperial periphery with this promise of of some form of autonomy or some kind of national identity. Can you explain a bit about how exactly the Bolsheviks brought back this periphery? Because it's, uh, you know, Dr. Smolkin argues that that Russia was sort of unique in this regard because this is at this moment in history, European empires are crumbling, and the Bolsheviks managed to kind of reconstitute what was what, what the Tsars what the Tsarist uh, Empire had. Right. So Lenin preached that uh, nations that had been oppressed under the Tsarist regime needed to become nations that had a sense of themselves as a nation that had a national literature that had a national culture. And the end goal of this project was not the reification of the nation, which Marxists, after all, do not believe in. Uh, but his idea was that Marxists believe in a historical process whereby peoples have to become nations and then the nation can be transcended and we can become internationalists. So in the 1920s, when the Red Army conquers Ukraine, there's a pretty dramatic and rapid process of Ukrainianization that, that happens. Ukrainians are the dominant ethnic minority in Ukraine at that time. There are substantial numbers of Poles, Jews, Germans, and others, and they're actually also where they constitute a majority of the local population given certain rights of self-determination. But basically, Lenin says Ukrainians will rule Ukraine. And what that means is that uh, Ukrainian, there's a, actually a kind of quota system whereby Ukrainians are supposed to constitute a majority of, of the party, of the apparatchiks. It means that Ukrainian for the first time in Ukrainian history is actually taught in schools. It means that Ukrainian um, peasant culture actually, which in the 19th century had been rather adversarial to the Russian state, becomes a kind of official uh, centerpiece of, of Soviet culture. And so the example that I'll give of this is um, Taras Shevchenko, the national poet from the 19th century, very much not in favor with the Tsarist regime, but the Soviet regime mass produces, you know, volumes of his work in Ukrainians that remain on everyone's books, in Ukrainian that remain on everyone's bookshelves um, today. So you have a kind of creation of, of national culture here. However, as I said, the ultimate goal of this national culture is to be transcended. So there's always a double-edged sword here. And there's always a risk that Ukrainians face of being accused of being too nationalist. And this brings about a great deal of violence in the 1930s, where a lot of the uh, creators of this Soviet Ukrainian culture are actually purged. They're accused of bourgeois nationalism. They're accused of taking their Ukrainian ideas a bit too far. And so this is the really important thing to understand about the Soviet Union and Ukraine. The Soviet Union definitely plays a role in the creation of Ukraine, but it also is always limiting um, the self-expression of, of Ukrainians in really profound ways as well. So does that, does that mean that the, is Ukraine then, is modern Ukraine a Soviet project, or it's like a—I mean, that's that—that because that, that, that would be kind of the the Kremlin talking point. This gets to the fact that there's sort of grains of truth in the Kremlin's narrative. 
when a Kremlin spokesperson, whether it's Peskov or whether it's Putin himself, says something to the extent of Ukraine, modern Ukraine is a, you know, the, is the, the creation of, of the Bolsheviks of the Soviet authorities, is there a, is there a kind of a quick response that people that that you could give to people that's, that explains why that's wrong, or is it just it's a it's a nuanced subject and we've been talking about it already? I think I would say that um, it's fair to say that a, a Ukrainian territory with a state that represents the culture of this territory is what you get in the Soviet Union. That's the Soviet innov- innovation. But if you're talking about Ukrainian culture or identity, that goes much further back. You can talk about a Ukrainian identity really as early as the 17th century, represented by the Cossacks, who, of course, have a very complicated relationship with the Russian Empire. They end up conquering uh, parts of central Ukraine today that were at that point part of Poland, kicking the Poles out and installing Orthodox supremacy. And in doing so, they're aligned with the Russians are, but they also very much consider themselves free agents. And there is a lot of debate over the precise nature of the arrangement that they had with the Russians are, but they definitely did not consider themselves vassals. And then by the 19th century, this kind of elite uh, Cossack national project, you're beginning to see it represented in a, in a classic national revival. So you get um, activists who began adopting Ukrainian as a language of educated culture, right? It had, it had always been a, a peasant language, but there are intellectuals who are interested in making it into a national language. You get Ukrainian newspapers, Ukrainian publications. This is where Taras Shevchenko, the poet, comes in. And this movement um, is marginalized in the 19th century because the Russian state is largely opposed to it, and many of its proponents are either harassed or imprisoned or exiled. But there's certainly a sense of some sort of Ukrainian national consciousness by the 19th century. And that, and that is not an invention of the Bolsheviks. The Bolsheviks simply sort of give that culture a territory that has demarcated borders called Ukraine. Okay, so Russia has been occupying parts of Ukraine since 2014. And now Moscow has launched a full-scale invasion of the country. About a century ago, after Russia's civil war, when the Bolsheviks set about retaking what they could of the Tsarist Empire, we saw a similar military campaign across Ukraine. I asked Dr. Hillis how that experience compares to what's happening now in Kiev and in cities across Ukraine, where Russian soldiers and war machines are advancing. Here's where I can say that Okay, the history is complicated, right? <laughs> I think these these prior moments were a little bit more complicated. Mm-hmm. In the Civil War period, the population was greatly divided. Some people wanted to be Ukrainian. Some people wanted to be Russian. And on top of that, there were also many ideological divides that didn't even always map on top of those national divides. So some self-aware Ukrainians wanted a Bolshevik Ukraine and some people who identified as Russian wanted a Bolshevik, uh, you know, Ukraine, but on different terms. 
Um, and so you see a lot of um, a lot of internal division in these in these previous moments. Now, again, it's still against the backdrop drop of aggression, right? And that's in the end what always dictates who wins, the who who has the 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 forces and the armies, and that's always historically been been Russia in the case of Ukraine. But what I think is really different right now is that you don't see a lot of Ukrainians standing up and saying, I want to be Russian. I actually have seen almost none of that. And in fact, quite the contrary, you've seen people on the border of the occupied regions of Donbass standing up and saying, I'm Ukrainian and standing up and saying that in Russian. So I think the paradox of the current moment is that the aggression, which um, we saw manifest in Crimea and has has, you know, continued, although in a quieter way before ramping up again, has actually, if anything, unified Ukrainians around a Ukrainian anti-Russian identity and driven them much further away from Russia than they've ever been in the past, ever, actually, I think it's fair to say. Does Ukraine have a civic national identity today? If you can you is it, I mean, as you're just describing, is it fairly easy to stand up and say I'm Ukrainian, but to identify as ethnically Russian? Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, it's always been a multi-ethnic country and it's always been a country of code switching as well. So language does take on political meaning in Ukraine. There are people, for example, who've chosen, although they're native speakers of Russian, not to speak Russian, right, for ideological reasons. But it's a country where you hear people switching back and forth. You hear people speaking Serzhik, which is a kind of mix of, of Russian and Ukrainian. And people are quite comfortable with that that code switching and that back and forth. So it's no longer so simple to point to regions in the East that remain primarily Russian speaking and to say, well, they're Russian by identity. I think what we're seeing now is most of those Russian speaking regions of Ukraine don't want to be part of Russia. And so the civic identity that you see emerging in Ukraine, which I should also say is much stronger than any civic identity that you see in Russia, because there's actually a civil society that's allowed to exist in Ukraine, right? But this this the civic identity in Ukraine is largely defined as being not Russia. And that's something that has been pretty powerful. But I think you're going to see is only more powerful now, right now that you have people just randomly bombarded in the middle of the night. No one wants to be part of Russia now. You've been listening to The Naked Pravda, an English language podcast from Medusa. On today's show, we discussed Ukrainian history, Russian imperialism, and Russia's invasion of Ukraine with Dr. Faith Hillis, a professor of Russian history at the University of Chicago. Her most recent book is titled Utopia's Discontents, Russian Exiles in the Quest for Freedom, 1830-1930. The Naked Pravda is a podcast from Medusa. It is our only English-language show, and I hope you recommend us to your friends and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in. It helps put this program in front of more people. Also, if you value Medusa's reporting, whether in English or Russian, please consider making a donation at support.medusa.io to help sustain our work. Recurring pledges help more, but we will take whatever you can spare. Thank you for listening. Stay safe and come back soon.